Nonkululeko Mandula on SAFM. I say, Africa must wake up, the sleeping sons of Jacob, for what tomorrow may bring. May Our dynasty on the morning bliss. Can you tell me, young ones, who are we today? Now, today we are going to be getting some history around uh, black concentration camps um, that uh, happened or that were there during in 19. 19- and 1902. There's a very interesting book called Work or Starve that has been written by Dr. Garth Bennyworth and uh, he's going to be giving us a bit of understanding about this period in time in South Africa. My question is why is it not taught in basic education? Hmm? There is a subject called history but I don't remember being taught about black concentration camps. Thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Garth Bennyworth. Good morning. Good morning, Nongaleko, and to the listeners, and thank you. Yes, why was it not taught in school? I mean, I can recall also being in school many decades ago and not learning a thing about it. In fact, only finding out about this in the late 1990s. It's an aspect of history that was left out of the, let's say, the sort of understanding of how the South African war was seen in the 20th century. And a lot of that had to do with the rise of Afrikaans nationalism in the 1920s, immediately after the war, and right through up until the 1994 period. And so there was most definitely um, an excising of history, and therefore, in a sense, almost a national amnesia, amnesia around the topic. So... Post, uh, post-1994, we started to see um, research by researchers or academics or interested persons into this topic. And over the last 20 years, you know, information about it. For example, this book has started to emerge. But yes, uh, in short, history was taught poorly. It still is in certain respects, but in this particular topic, it wasn't taught at all, and hence the lack of memory around it. Now, what has sparked you to write about this book? Thank you. The first, the first point is, is that during the 1990s, you know, my interest in the South African War goes right back to the 1970s. Um, but during the 1990s, you know, in the lead up to the centenary in 1999, you know, personally, I actually started to find out that these camps had existed. And in 1999, whilst doing work in the Brantford area, in Free State Province. Hello? Still here. We can hear yes. you loud and clearly. Uh, while, while doing work in the Free State Province, um, I came across one of, one of such sites and had the, had the privilege, let's say, of actually meeting a very, very old woman then, well over 100 years old, who'd actually been a child in one of these black concentration camps. And to put it succinctly, I was absolutely fascinated by the topic, but of course there was no information available about it. So it was really much a a personal sort of interest and a personal journey that followed from that. And here we are sort of 20-something years later. And um, during the course of the earlier part of this year, I decided, well, perhaps the time is now right to actually sit down and write down what I, in fact, had uncovered. And the end result is work or starve. What is the book about, work or starve? The book essentially is about the black concentration camps and also the black forced labor camps that existed in South Africa between 1901 and 1902 during the South African War. 
So it has a number of aspects to it. First, it looks at the sort of holistic picture, you know, the big picture of what was in fact going on and how these camps actually developed and originated and what their actual specific function was, because their function was completely different to that, let's say, the Boer concentration camps. So it takes it from that sort of big picture level, and then it goes down to specific case studies, approximately 13 case studies of 13 different sites I'd found across South Africa, with the epicenter of that being around the Kimberley area, because essentially that is in fact where a lot of the policy started around these camps. So it, it takes the big picture, it then takes the localized picture, and then it looks at the specific sites which were located by myself and in the case of a friend of mine um, who's now deceased over the period of, let's say, 2000 to 2007. And the archaeological work that we actually did on one of the sites outside the Kimberley area and another one near Freiburg in the northwest province. So it looks at the archaeology that we found and then using the archaeology and using archival records, which are located here not only in South Africa, but in Britain and Australia, and combining those with um, the archaeological evidence, then actually arriving at what is the evidence and what is the forensic evidence in specific cases actually tell us versus talking about a generic whole of people we were able to actually, I was able to get down, right down to the specific details of even individual names or where people actually came from and how they ended up in the system and what then happened to them during the experience of the camps and immediately after the war. Mm, Very interesting book. How long did it take you to research on this book? Well, the research, if I say there was literally a sort of a formal start date, I would say would have been in October 1999. And the research still goes on. I mean, it's not as though one reaches, if for the personal interest, one ever reaches a cut-off date. But in this particular case, I would say the research was over a a 20-year period at least. And, you know, not all at one time, obviously. There would have been periods of intense research and periods of reflection. And so, therefore, 20 years of research in this particular case, and in terms of writing it, um, probably about three or four months of this year with uh, uninterrupted you know, interruptions and to be able to sit down and start fine, let's actually put pen to paper, so to say. Mm. It's a long time um, for research. So clearly, uh, the the context of this book, Work or Starve, is uh, quite accurate. And it it gives a broad history of uh, this uh, time during the concentration, black concentration camps. Can you share with us, uh, Dr. Um, Garth, what are some of the experiences that you had while writing and researching this book? Well, one of the first experiences, as I mentioned earlier, was in fact in Brownfort, in the Free State Province, meeting someone who had actually been in a camp as a child and was able to relate from her memory. Personally, I found it absolutely captivating and riveting, to say the least. Um, But then from there, in fact, doing field work, particularly in two villages, Netswana Hatsi and Moratele, which are at a place called Dry Hearts, which is south of Freiburg, and actually working in that village over, and I won't say all in one go, but over a three-year period, um, you know, with local people there listening to their accounts about how they remembered the war through their family oral histories. And in fact, many of the elderly people then who were in their 80s and 90s, and I'm talking 20 years ago, had had parents who were actually in these camps and who'd actually related, well, in that specific case, that actual camp at Rahat's, 
um, and had related through family oral history their own experiences. That was, again, a very new and a very sort of enlightening angle. Then, of course, you know, everything down to the ordinary, you know, arriving at an archaeological site in the morning and finding snakes in you know, the work from yesterday or working in the open sun in the middle of nowhere. You know, there's plenty of that too. And some of that does come through the book because obviously there, is, uh, there are periods of personal reflection. Um, so while it is very much um, intended and written from the perspective of the historical past, there is a degree of reflection into actually how did this, how did this information actually come about. So there's all sorts of anecdotal um, sort of moments. However, I would say the key or the core of the experience was in fact accessing that 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 remaining trace of living memory from from that particular historical event. Uh, can you tell us what sort of resources um, did you use during the time of research throughout all these years? Well, you know, the sort of let's say the standard historian uh, resource would be accessing original records in archives or record centers. So one of the processes there was an audit of what actually remained. Um, and of course, there's not a lot of records that's remained from the, the, the whole total that was created at the time. But be that as it may, is you know accessing these archives, Cape Town, Bloemfontein, Johannesburg, Victoria, London, Sydney, Canberra, and elsewhere, and actually putting together and copying and identifying this material. That was one of the resources. The other resource, of course, was the actual forensic evidence, so the resource of archaeology and the resource of landscape, where one could arrive at a particular site, albeit in the absolute middle of nowhere. And in some cases, it, the archaeological evidence was left on the surface. It was almost as if the people had more than 100, who had been there more than 100 years ago, literally left the day before and you know, left everything behind them. So the archaeological record was a tremendous resource as well, because that could go where written records couldn't. And then, of course, one of the other resources which I mentioned was, in fact, the living memory. You know, what had actually come down through families and through generations, and how how was it understood now versus perhaps what happened then. And what was quite uncanny was, in fact, in certain instances, um, oral histories that were being related could, in fact, be backed up by direct archival records about the specific experiences of those people relating about their parents or even their grandparents. So there was those three central resources, archives, archaeology, and, and oral history, you know, living memory. And when put together, they then, in fact, gave a far greater picture of what could, what had actually happened in the historical past and how we understand it now and can understand it moving forward from him. Mm. Dr. Garth, when one thinks of just the title, it's scary, Work mm. or Starve. It, 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 it can ignite a very um, sad emotion um, just, just from the title. But I'm sure there's much deeper lessons that we can learn from this particular book um, uh, talking about black uh, concentration camps and forced labor camps in South Africa. What are some of the teachings within the book? Well, for example, the, the very title itself, um, I was asked this question recently, you know, what was behind the title? How did that come about? And in fact, the, the title comes from a, a meeting that was actually held in Kimberley in May 1901. And that meeting was held between um, the sort of representatives of, of international mining 
and also the military representatives from the British Army, where in fact they sat down and worked out a policy whereby the 115 or 120,000 um, black civilians who were at that point were interned or would be interned would in fact be coerced into working as forced laborers for the British Army. And if in fact they weren't prepared to work or they resisted labor, then in fact they were not to be rationed and to be left to starve to death literally. So it's actually an historical term, um, which obviously conjures up what it does. Uh, what are some of the other lessons are, for example, that you mentioned earlier about the lack of memory and the lack of understanding history. One of the lessons there is that, in fact, if one does have a particular topic, and there are no shortage of topics in this country or anywhere else for that matter, it is actually possible to uncover a fractured past and to actually reconstruct to the best of one's possibilities using the resources what may have actually happened and how does that impact on the present. And so, for example, with these camps, or these forced labor and concentration camps, we do see the sort of emergence of various patterns in South Africa in the very early years of the 20th century. Some of those patterns we still live today in terms of you know spatial planning and the apartheid legacies that come with that. So there are there are a number of lessons. I mean, beyond the obvious, you know, that war was a traumatic, horrific experience for whoever experiences it. You know, beyond that, there are certain societal lessons that we can see here, and there are certain patterns that still evolve into the present that we could possibly address moving forward. It is recorded that about twenty-four thousand women and children um, died in these uh, concentration camps. Yes. Uh, but uh, from your research, it seems that there's much more than this number. Tell us more. Correct. You see, this is the thing again with um, archival records and archaeological records. You know, archival records are firstly written by those who've written. So there are biases that come in. Or, for example, um, records can be inaccurate. So in certain case studies, for example, the concentration camp at Taung in Northwest Province. Um, the British military records there have approximately 85 people perishing of various causes in this camp, and those would be women and children mainly, where in fact the archaeology on the terrain has at least 2,000 graves you know, versus the 85 in the records. The same being for Dryhart's camp, also nearby, where the archival records have approximately 450 fatalities where in fact again the archaeology shows at least 2,000 graves within which there could be multiple burials and this pattern repeats itself in many other sites which were located across South Africa. So you know 24,000 is a figure that's been established by archival records and therefore there's a a fairly high degree of accuracy to that Um, but that's not the full picture. I mean the forensic evidence of archaeology will show that that's far from the full picture at all. And therefore, you know, if one takes those sorts of numbers that one finds these burial sites on actual terrain, that is the forensic evidence. That speaks to itself. So when there are 2,000 graves versus a written record of, of 450 or 85, I mean, that starts to paint a very different picture as to, in fact, what happened. So what work or style shows quite clearly is that, in fact, one cannot go purely on the, on the written record alone. There is, a, there is a place for it, most definitely, um, but on its own, it's limited. And the forensic evidence of archaeology is, in fact, going to provide the greater picture to understanding something which there's very little written records that have survived. And that speaks to itself. So 
while it is impossible to say how many people actually perished in these camps, we can take the official figure of roughly 24,000 and say, well, fine, we're looking at more than 30, perhaps 40, who knows, 40,000 people having died of starvation and infectious diseases in these concentration camps and forced labor camps in South Africa. Now, Dr. Garth, this month, or especially tomorrow, is a Reconciliation Day. Yes. Um, the month is a month where people are jubilating, but it's a reflective month as well. Do you believe, after going through the research, writing this book on black concentration camps in the 1900s, do you believe that there's need for reconciliation? Or have we as South Africans not um, really taken into consideration this particular part of our history? Well, the, the answer to the question, which has got two parts, is yes to both. I mean, there is a need for reconciliation in this country. And in any post-conflict society, there's always a need for reconciliation. In South Africa, most definitely, is a post-conflict society of multiple conflicts, not just those in the 20th century. So there is that. Um, and also, in terms of this incorporating this particular historical record into our understanding of, of our 20th century and even present history, and how we reflect back on the past, most definitely that needs to be reconciled into the national narrative. Which goes back to your original point of, you know, how is it that we don't even know about it to start off with? It's not even taught. And that is one way of actually addressing the matter. So even, for example, the War Museum in Wimpenton, um, they have as their mandate the South African War. Um, however, they also have, and they certainly do this, the, the mandate of social cohesion and building social cohesion, using this particular historical conflict as an anchor point for their particular project. Um, but this book will demonstrate in one particular historical case study where, in fact, in our country's history, there's no end of them. And therefore, reconciling the traumatic part is essential. How do we reconcile the traumatic part? What is it that you'd recommend after so much research and writing? One of the things where, for example, if we take this particular historical event, which is now 120 plus years ago, it would be through your education system and your schooling system. So, as again, back to the original point that we opened this discussion with, is in fact teaching that through the, through the schooling system and even the higher education system as well. It's very fragmented. I mean, there are small elements of it in the, in the, in the education system, yes, in the curriculum. Um, however, that, that, that is not enough. And one needs to bring this through in a form or integrated manner where in fact one looks at the South African experience um, of British imperialism in this particular example and the effects of that and what that then led to in 20th century South Africa. So education of course is the primary key to understanding anything really and taking let's say lessons from the historical past and into the present and what the value of those are and where that then leads us into the future. Where do we get this book? The book is available from the War Museum uh, of the Boer Republics, or the South African War Museum, as it's more widely known, in Bloemfontein. It's available on their website online, um, and all one has to do there is Google War Museum Bloemfontein, and that will then take the purchaser or the person who's interested to the link on their website. So it's available online. Um, it can be bought through that platform internationally, and at this point in time, that is where it can be obtained. 
Thank you so very much, uh, Dr. Garth Bennyworth, for putting down this much-needed and critical research into um, black concentration camps in the 1900s. We appreciate you. Any pleasure. Thank you very much, Nongoleko.